Hello, my name is David Westbrook. And I'm Victoria Sundin, and this is the first ever episode of Have You Heard Of? So, we are two people who just graduated college. I say just graduate, we graduated like two years ago, two, three years ago, but in the grand scheme of it all, we just graduated college. And potatoes, we have potatoes de- at the end of the day. Potatoes, potatoes. And we have degrees in music, and we are here to share our knowledge, <laughs> our vast knowledge, um, with you on obscure composers. <laughs> so, with all that being said, Victoria? Have you heard of Le Chevalier de Saint-Georges? I have heard of him. I don't know that much about him. I know that he's black, and that's it. That is that is a big part of his life, and most likely the reason why nobody really talks about him, which is mm-hmm. sad, because this dude was wild. Like, in so many... So, he was born to a slave owner his mother was the maid of his dad's wife it was a 16 year old um black woman who was called nanon now in every other way the story goes 99 percent of the time it's just going to end up with the father probably not wanting to deal with this guy and just letting it go and not inheriting this man as his own which sucks but sounds familiar that's 1700 for you but this guy won the lottery of parents and his dad said essentially i want you to be my son and i'm gonna take care of you to the best of my ability and that's what he did so he packed up and he went to paris And he trained in Paris as a fencer. A fencer? Yes, a fencer. Now, you might say, you might say, but wait a second, I thought this was about music. Yes, I was about to say that. (laughs) That's a good thing to say. So, (laughs) we're not quite sure how he got good at music, but at some point around, um, around about the age when he's 19... All of a sudden, it just pops up that, oh, by the way, like, side note, I might be one of the greatest violinists in Europe in the mid-1700s. Oh, you know, that happens all the time. Yeah, right? And we're talking, like, like Mozart, Haydn levels of prodiginess, prodigalness, prodigology. Prodigiety. Prodigology. My favorite. This is one head. This is one hundred percent a scholarly source. Um. Oh, a hundred percent. But yeah, so he, at around the age of nineteen, he starts showing off that he's not only an incredible fencer but also an incredible violinist. I mean, I guess the hand technique must be the same for fencing and you know, playing the violin and conducting. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, like, there's a lot of, like, wrist movements, you gotta be fast, I I don't know how fast you have to be whenever you're, like, your hands gotta be fast for the violin, I don't know how much, like, not being stabbed plays into playing the violin, but I I assume that, you know, 
You gotta. Maybe you gotta that's be... the real secret to success. It's just getting stabbed a lot. Yeah, but knowing the classical music world, they'd still keep on going. Oh, absolutely. Because oh yeah, no they'd pain, be no like, gain. yeah, no pain, no gain. They'd be like, eh, sorry, your eyes out. You know, like just kick it back over to the guy. We gotta keep going. But yeah, so he becomes like just prodigal with the violin and with fencing. Um, he made his first big wave of the news as fast as news could travel in the mid-1700s um, in 1769 because he was just so good at the violin and fencing simultaneously. And four years Four years later, so in like 1773, he'd already become a concertmaster slash conductor for his own orchestra. So he started up a group of, um, of musicians that were known as the amateurs. And so these were people that, as the name suggests, were amateurs. Right. And he was so good at conducting and leading these people that it has been said that he ultimately became one of the best conductors in Europe at the time. Wow. It was that his orchestra was so impeccable that people would come from all over the continent to see his orchestra performing in Paris. So, how did he get to Paris? So, his dad paid for him to go to Fencing Academy at the Royal Polytechnic Academy of Fencing and Horsemanship. Right. That uh, essential part of fencing is the horsemanship and music, apparently. <laughs> Can you imagine today if you met with someone and they were like, oh, what are you going to college for? And they straight up said horsemanship. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something like, can you imagine today somebody um, with horsemanship like getting good at music? And I was going to say, yeah, country. Oh, so true. But can you imagine like if somebody, if someone was like, oh, I go, <laughs> I go to the college of fencing and horsemanship. They probably have that degree at A&M. They probably do have that degree in A&M. <laughs> but yeah, so on the vein of fencing, one of the really defining moments in his career was actually when he was 17. So while he was studying fencing at this academy, this master fencer at the academy was making fun of this guy and his teacher. He was calling him a bunch of very bad words that we're not saying here. And essentially enough was trying to say that because Joseph was black, he could never be as good as a white man at fencing or anything that's civilized. And we don't support that. And we don't, we do not support racist 1700s fencers. We say no to racism on this podcast. Thank you. So... <laughs> If you have a debate between two fencers, how do you settle it? Chess, of course. No, 
they 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 fenced it out. So it drew a massive crowd apparently, and it was pretty much split down the middle between abolitionists and people that were pro-slavery. And like usually whenever this stuff happens, usually the guy that's like the good guy, you know, usually he gets crushed in reality. Movies always make it sound like, you know, like it's going to be Ooh, you know, I'm the big underdogs, all this stuff. Joseph crushes this guy. The guy's name, by the way, is Alexander Picard. Um, if you're a fencing nov, if you're a fencing scholar, and you're like, oh, Alexander, great. Oh, he's my he's my favorite fencer. Just so kidding. True. I one know nothing about fencing, and two don't support racist people. Anyway, a hundred percent. But yeah, so. He beats this guy, and he ultimately graduates from fencing school, and is made an officer of the king's bodyguard and becomes a chevalier. Ooh. And from that point on, he picks up the title of chevalier. Um, his father was a chevalier of Saint-Georges, so he picks up that title, and it's at this point where he pretty much stops referring to himself as Joseph Bologna. He instead just calls himself Le Chevalier or Le Chevalier de Saint-Georges. But he pretty much, from what I understand, he just went by Le Chevalier. So that's pretty much what happens throughout the beginning of his life towards the, like, middle-ish kind of the be early beginning of the middle of his life so once he gets into really his 40s is when life starts to get wild for this guy as if it wasn't wild enough already it was not wild enough already so as we all know nothing happened in france in 1789 Nothing at all. Nothing at all. It, historians widely consider it to be the least important year in the history of Europe. Wait, one thing did no. happen. Nothing? Wait, wait, what What happened? Oh, I was, um, it's called the French Revolution. You may have not heard of it. Whoa, spoiler alert. I'm not there yet in history class. Dang, sorry. <laughs> Yes, so the French Revolution happens in 1789, which actually is probably... So, Le Chevalier benefits a lot from the French Revolution at the beginning. Um, it kind of gets a little bit crazy there later on. But at the mm -hmm. beginning of the French Revolution, it does him well. Because um, the French Revolution... In the French Revolution, he suddenly gains a lot more rights that he did not have beforehand. Good. Because because the the revolution promised or promoted a form of equality with the declaration of equal rights to all French people because he was considered a French person because of his father. He was given rights. So now, for example, he could join the military. He had not been able to join the military before this time. Legend has it, and I believe it's backed up by... I think we have the record still. Um, he was the first person to sign up to join 
the French National Guard in Lille. Not the first person, like, to join the Guard, period, but, like, in the city of Lille, he was the guy camping outside of the Best Buy waiting to get the new iPhone. Except it was signing up for the military. Oh, yeah, I people do that all the time. But he was gung-ho about it. He... He finally was able to serve his country, and this was a man that wanted to serve his country. So, because of his past actions, he was awarded his own cavalry brigade. And this brigade was special because it was the first brigade made entirely of people of color in all of Europe. What? That's whack. Sorry, that was a good what, not a bad what. And I was like, oh, how dare they? No, that's actually, that's amazing. Like, yeah, especially for all of Europe in the 1700s, like, that's, um, that's really amazing that he was able to do that. Mm-hmm. So, this ragtag group of men, um, they created this legion, and they were quite successful Problems came about, though, uh, as they often do. So Saint-Georges was famous for wanting to put on concerts. He was, even as the leader of a legion, he was still putting on concerts for the general public. Okay, Um, nice. Yeah, right? Cool. And so, eventually enough, that got the worst of him. And... He lost out in public favor and was ultimately put in jail. So he was jailed for 18 months. He Why was, was he put in jail? He was never charged with anything. They just they just put him in jail for no reason? Yep. He was put in jail for showing quote-unquote loyalist sen- or royalist sentiments. But what did he do to show royalist sentiment if he was... One, in the Legion, fighting against royalty, is just, like, putting on concerts and playing music, like, anti, um, like, against the revolution. So, what happened, from what I understand, is, so there were a few things that were going on at once. He refused orders from a general that had always wanted to destroy his legion because the general didn't believe that a legion of people of color, from my understanding, could be successful. He also, he lost public sentiment because they thought that he was using the funds to fund his orchestra instead of funding, um, like, the war effort, but in reality... As far as I know from research, he never really got that many funds ever. I think he got an initial amount of funds, but after that, I don't think he ever got anything again. And lastly, it was because his men ultimately were not able to um, to be sustained by him. Um, so all of that combined together ultimately led to his arrest. He was arrested and he was thrown into jail for, excuse me, I said 18 months earlier, it was actually only 13 months, but that's still a fair amount of time. Over a yeah, year. Yeah, that's, that's a year, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, 
he was in prison, and now usually whenever you're imprisoned in the late 1700s, you're probably going to the guillotine. Um, but he was spared because the person in charge of the prison was pretty much all bark and no bite. So they gave all these big bloodthirsty speeches to the public about how they were, you know, lobbing heads left and right, all that jazz. Um, but they weren't really lobbing heads left and right, as far as I can understand. And then ultimately, after 13 months of being imprisoned without any charges, he was released um, and never charged for wrongdoing or anything like that. Oh, that's good. At least he wasn't guillotined. Yeah, I mean... Like, think of all the music that wouldn't have happened if he just mm-hmm. w- was guillotined right then and there. And that's surprising you say that because if I remember anything from the French Revolution is that they loved to guillotine people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, he was very fortunate for that. And so, after he was released, all he wanted to do was uh, get back his regiment Um, He tried his hardest, but it had been taken over by two other people. One dude was totally chill with it. He wanted nothing more than for Saint-Georges to have back his rank and regiment, since he said that it was Saint-Georges' army anyway. The other guy, though, said, No way, Jose. I don't want that. Um, I want to keep on leading. So he fought for over a year to get his regiment back and all of that, but ultimately he was not successful and he was ordered to retire and he was told to retire anywhere but where the regiment was. So that ended his his military career and that ultimately left him without any medals, nothing to show what he'd done. Yeah, so he fights, um, he fights the system, he loses, And then his life gets kind of hazy. It seems as though he might have fought in the Haitian slave revolution for a while. Oh. Yeah, so there's not much, there's there's not that much information about it. Um, And the information that is there is hairy at best. But he does have friends who wrote about him being there fighting against the colonial French for the Haitian cause. I don't know. It, it gets really dicey at that point, and the references are not that great. You mean to tell me that sources from the 1700s aren't 100% crystal clear and accessible today? You know, that is what I'm telling you. Yeah. Oh, the nerve. I know, the nerve of some people, why they didn't write down every single thing, which they pretty much did write down every single thing they did. Um, Wasn't much else to do. We're just bad at keeping up. So true. So ultimately, he ends up back in France, um, and like all great classical composers, he dies of, um, he dies in poverty. And he dies from a bladder disease and gangrene. <laughs> Thus endeth his life. Can't wait. But now, <laughs> dear listener, you might say, well, that's a lot of military career. But what about his musical career? This is a music podcast. To which I'd say, yes, you are exactly right. He just did so much military-wise 
and so much music-wise that it's easier just to split them up into two different conversations than even try and talk about them at the same time, because this guy is bonkers. So he, as I've said, we'll pick back up from when he's concert master and stuff like that. He created the con he created the orchestra that I talked about before, the amateurs. A lot of the reason why he formed this group was so that he could show off how good he was at the violin. It was noted several times that women would swoon at his violin skills. So Real Franz Liszt on our hands. Yes. Chevalier walked so Franz Liszt could run. So true. He wrote a fair amount of music. The first main publications that we have by him are a set of six string quartets that were inspired by the works of Haydn. Um, and okay. super quick, running over the list of stuff that he wrote. He also wrote 12 other string quartets. Three piano and violin sonatas, a sonata for harp and flute, six violin duos, 12 violin concertos, two symphonies, eight symphony concertante, which is like a Parisian form of symphony, and he wrote six operas and some songs. So, he wrote a fair amount. And a partridge in a pear tree. I mean, it's not like, like Mozart level of output, right? But this man also fought in wars, so like the fact that... The fact he could write that much in general is wild to me. Mm-hmm. He took over as conductor and concertmaster of the amateurs in 1773. And two years after taking over that, it was described, quote-unquote, as performing with great precision and delicate nuance, becoming the best orchestra for symphonies in Paris and perhaps in all of Europe. So time passes... And his group is disbanded, but the Freemasons come in. You didn't think we'd have Freemasons in this story, but they always come into the picture somewhere. They recognize how good this guy is. And so they give him the funds to create a new orchestra, and it's called Le Concert Olympique. He was authorized by the Freemasons to actually commission... Haydn, the guy who'd inspired him to write his first string quartets, to compose six symphonies, which we know today as the Paris symphonies. So he, Saint-Georges, then conducts the premiere of those symphonies at the Salle des Gardes Suisse in the Tuileries. And it is known that Marie Antoinette was in attendance at some of these concerts. Ooh, spicy. Yeah, so the Paris Opera started falling apart around 1776. So St. George, he was proposed to be the next director of the opera since he was like the only dude in France that had done anything of the scale of creating a successful French orchestra since, like, Luli. That's a long time ago. <laughs> That's a long time ago. And but, I guess they have something in common, too. They uh -huh. both died of gangrene. <laughs> they both died of gangrene, classic Luli, with his little stick stabbing himself in the foot. So, um, so he was, his name was put out in the running as a potential to be the, um, 
the new conductor for the Paris Opera. But, of course, as it always is in the 1700s, Interplayer 2, racism. Right. Um, so, the opera singers at the time, essentially enough, said that their delicateness and their honor could never be uh, desecrated by, quote-unquote, submitting to the orders of a mulatto. Um, so that's problematic. Yeah, a little bit. And Saint George, being the gentleman that he is, being just overall a swell dude, he was friends with Marie Antoinette. So he would sneak into Versailles, and Marie Antoinette and he would play music together. He would play violin, and she would most likely play um, the piano. So he was friends with Marie Antoinette. And so because of that, and because he didn't want to put her into a bad position, and because he didn't want to have to make her do a hard, make a hard decision, he ultimately withdrew his name from being considered. And I believe that the Paris Opera then went on to be taken back over by the government. Ultimately, he started creating um, operas. His first opera flopped. It went oh. terribly, apparently. But that was entirely due to a bad libretto. It was stated that the opera itself, the music was fantastic, but the libretto was so bad um, that nobody liked it. Only one of his operas is surviving. Were they ever performed at the Paris Opera? I don't know if they were performed at the Paris Opera. I do know that Marie Antoinette was in attendance of, I believe, the first opera, which, apparently enough, everyone was booing and Marie Antoinette felt as though it would be bad for her reputation because of this if she stayed. So she ultimately just left halfway through and that was she like... She deuced? The, yeah, she deuced. And that was like the death of this opera. Ultimately, though, he scored a position as the director of the Duke of Orleans' wife's private theater. Now, another famous composer comes into the picture here. Mozart, he goes to France and he stays with, you guessed it, the Duke of Orleans, the Chevalier. He is also staying with the Duke of Orleans. So we do have it on record that Mozart and Le Chevalier stayed in the same house for like two or three months. Which means they would have known each other. Yeah, I was about to ask, like, do you think they ever, like, they just run into each other and they're like, so so what are you working on? And Mozart's like, oh, you know, just this opera. Yeah, and no, Chevalier's exactly. like, oh, cool. And then he goes back to his room and he's like, I bet it's gonna flop. Mm-hmm. I like to imagine they had that, you know, when, like, two people are walking down a hallway and, like, one person turns left and then the other person, like, gets in their way. Because I imagine that's what Mozart did for fun, was just being like, oh, no, you go left and I go, no, 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 you go left and I, right? That's the type of person I imagine Mozart was, which is needless to say, insufferable. Absolutely. Um, though, I assume Mozart also probably respected Saint George for 
Mozart had to have known that Saint George could have beat the shit out of Mozart. Probably. <laughs> or I he, mean, they respected each other because they were both man. composers and they were both staying at the house of the Duke of Orleans. Or he was just scared. <laughs> I mean, you never know. Mozart wasn't that tall. No, Mozart was short. He was scrawny, mm-hmm. from what I understand. They were all scrawny back then. Son George probably wasn't scrawny, but he was also, like, a world champion fencer. If you imagine, so. like, those band kids, like, back in the day, that's Mozart. Like, T-posing everywhere, calling each other comrade. Oh, 100%. Mozart would have worn combat boots. <laughs> so then Joseph went on to write a fair amount more operas. One was called uh, Le Chasse, and uh, another one was called Le Mans Anonyme. Um, only the second one remains known. We do not have any information really about any of the other ones. Um, and then soon after those operas became a big deal, um, the Duke dies. And luckily enough, the guy that becomes Duke next was also friends with Le Chevalier. So he gets a small place to live through Le Chevalier. Sadly, though, he lost his orchestra. But he wanted Le Chevalier to go to London so that Le Chevalier could act almost like a diplomat for him to help him set up so that if the Duke could become... In a position of power, he could then have influence in England, and then that English influence could help him claim the throne and become regent of France. But the chief of staff of the duke wanted to use the chevalier because he was black to contact abolitionists in England to help with the anti-slavery movement in France. Okay, good. So there were multiple reasons why Le Chevalier was sent to England. It was mainly for like diplomatic reasons, and then also anti-slavery reasons. So not the worst. Hmm. So he and now this is probably the craziest part of this man's life. Give it is to what me. happens to him while he's in England. So he goes to England and he is meeting with British abolitionists all over the place. On his way home one afternoon from meeting with abolitionists, he's attacked by a man with a pistol that wants his money. Oh my god. So, yeah. Luckily enough, our chevalier beats this guy up. Good. <laughs> um, and then, after he beats this guy up, Four more dudes, like, try and jump him what? like an ambush. But our friend Le Chevalier, being a master fencer, sustains only minor injuries and then goes on to play music that night with his friends. So he, he survives an assassination attempt and then is like, ah, I think I'm still doing well enough to go play music. Right, he just, like, rolls up at the bar and they're like, oh, Chevalier, like, good to see you here. And he's like, yeah, wait till you get a load of this. And then he, like, orders a beer and, like, tells a story. Yeah, exactly, right? Like, 
I like to imagine, you know, they're all they're all sitting around and they're all complaining about their days. And one guy's like, oh, man, I drank some contaminated well water. I'm not feeling too great. <laughs> and another guy's like, another guy's like, oh, my cow got out. So I had to chase it down for 20 minutes. And then this guy's like, five men tried to murder me and I beat them all up. And now I got this gnarly bruise on my face. <laughs> Who wants to play violin? <laughs> God, what a life. Yeah, no, entirely what a life this guy had. I mean, he was... He was all over the place. He was a, a boat setter. He went between the continents. He fought for both the the royalty, the monarchy, and the revolution. And he was an incredible violin player and musician and conductor. So he really had it all. Um, I think it's... Given the circumstances of the time period... You know, especially with colonialism and the slave trade. Like, it's really amazing that he had all of these opportunities. And, you know, deservingly so, because he was phenomenal pretty much at everything he did. Yeah, and I think that's really important to remember is that, I mean, this is a man that I don't... As far as I remember, he, there was no mention of him at all in my... No, I've never, I've never heard of him... Um, in the in Norton history. Anthology, yeah, in our boy Norton Anthology, never mentioned. Yeah, him no, once. I don't. I don't remember ever hearing about him, um, which is wild because I mean, as you listen to his music, like we're gonna do here in a second. I mean, if you're playing a game of who's that composer and you played this guy's music, I would without any hesitation say Mozart or Haydn. Let's give it a listen. Okay, so now's the part of the podcast where we listen to the music of the composer that we're talking about, and we pick it apart, analyze it, and we compare it to um, one of the more famous composers of the same time period. So in this case, we're going to compare um, the Chevalier with Mozart, who is arguably the most famous composer of the classical era. Yes. So the piece that we are going to be looking at today is the Chevalier's um, Violin Concerto in G Major. This would have been composed in around 1770, um, between then and 1780, so right around his mid-30s in his life. Um, is that around the time period when he was at the, um, uh, the house of the Duke of Orleans? I believe, yes, that is right around that same time that he was living with the Duke of Orleans. He would have been... Around Mozart, also probably during this time period. So, a good period of his life. Okay, yeah, like no turmoils of war yet. Nope, just conducting and being, uh, you know, being a fun dude to be around. Being a fencer. Mm-hmm. Alright, well, let's give it a listen then. Sure thing.
So right off the bat, you see a lot of typical things you would hear in a classical piece. Yeah, I you've got that just driving kind of undertone of it with the second violins and the violas doing that like bum 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 motion. Good sewing machine music. Uh-huh. We love it. And then you have a really nice dominance of the melody by the first violins. Yeah, and there's also like repetition of different parts of the melody. Um, one thing I will say that is really interesting is that um, the, I guess the A section we would call it, or like the beginning of the A section, it doesn't have that full like 16 bar like measure feel like the last bar, what would be considered the last bar of that section starts off the new section. Um, mm -hmm. We're looking at a score right now that David so kindly put together for us. Um, measure 12. You know, that would usually yeah. mark the end of that melodic line, but it starts the new one. So I think that's very interesting. One thing I really like about that last section that we just listened to is so he holds off on using the cellos and the double bass but then once that initial the the initial big blast comes in with the full orchestra at that point then they're there to stay for the remainder of that segment mm -hmm. that's all and this mm -hmm. this part is also where you start getting the chromaticism like those chromatic lines in the melody um and also sequences like we love a good old sequence in classical music love a good sequence never you can never go wrong mm -hmm. with the sequence <laughs> no you really never can and i think it's i it's very interesting to hear some of the the chordal choices that he's using i really appreciate how in measure 19 for example um so he ends it on this nice big d major chord and then he kind of starts to use D minor as a little bit of a turnaround key. Mm -hmm. Right? You see what I'm meaning right there? Yeah. Um, and he uses that kind of as a little bit of a transitional piece to transition and sequence his way all the way up to a high D so that he can come back down and ultimately get to where he's going, which is... G, which makes sense because G's just, or D's just the five of G anyway. Yeah, I also like in that section how um, the violins are like straight up in octaves, like there's no harmony uh -huh. there. That's a very jarring uh, melodic choice because mm -hmm. normally we find, you know, the peace, love, you know, live, laugh, love vibes in um, like harmony and not usually in octaves. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and it's and it's weird to have this melody be parallel octaves like that, yeah. you know. That's I mean it's it's somewhat of a technique that I associate with the classical yeah. um, era, and, but not but not nearly to this level. And it's still something that's considered fairly taboo especially like the baroque era where you know parallel fifths weren't a thing parallel octaves weren't a thing um that was just something yeah because parallel octaves definitely go against the rules of counterpoint yes also the devil <laughs> yes so yeah let's let's keep yes. on listening awesome
Hello, this is Editing David here with a quick interjection. We're going to be using the word hemiola a fair amount throughout this episode, and I wanted to give a quick overview of what that is to make sure you're not confused. While it sounds like something you get after going to your friend's bachelor party in Vegas, a hemiola is a rather controversial topic in the music world, if you can believe that things are controversial in the world of music theory. Some schools of thought say that it's simply when two groups of three gain a new emphasis and become three groups of two. This makes sense when you have a meter with three beats per measure, since six can be divided by two or three easily. The other group of thought here uses the same basic idea, but includes both metric change, like the previously mentioned three beats becomes two, or polyrhythmic, where there are multiple rhythms happening at the same time. To get a clear example of this, here's me playing quarter notes on the piano. And here's me playing triplets on top of those quarter notes, making this a hemiola, like what we're talking about. For this episode, and because it's how we were taught, we'll be referring to hemiola's 3-2 grouping that can be both metric and polyrhythmic. There's a link to a video if you're still confused in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. So one thing that he uses a lot in this violin concert that I really appreciate is he uses um, hemiola very well. Yes. So you're going to get a lot of that three against two feeling, um, which I really appreciate. Um, I love the I love the way that it sounds. Um, I love how it has a little bit of a jarring effect almost. And he utilizes it so well throughout this piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is some good stuff. Alright, so we're in the five section of this part. You know, we've modulated to the five of G, which is D. Mm-hmm. So yes. we're starting to see more chromaticism in this part. And, and we are firmly in the key of D major. Yes, we are there is... strongly in the key of G, D major. Yes, there are zero questions about that. Um, I like... I really appreciate talking about that triplets motif that we were talking about earlier um, that you'll hear a fair amount throughout this. I appreciate in measures like 84 and 85 how he starts off with that duple feeling and then he goes and transitions into that triplet feeling. Mm -hmm. That keeps Um, the melody driving. It keeps the melody driving. It also... I like the variation there because it gives it something fresh, you know? If he just stayed 
with the duple meter, but not in those... Yeah, if he just stayed with the duple meter, he it probably would have stagnated a little bit there. But using that triplet feel to really propel it, you get that kind of almost dance-like quality to it. Yeah, and that's something that Mozart does a lot, that um, especially in his operas that he'll he'll like he'll do the same thing where it starts in a like he'll subdivide the beat to propel the melody but he does it like he goes from eighth notes to 16th notes um and i've sung a lot of 16th note runs by mozart and they're not fun but uh this definitely is a change of pace instead of um staying in that duple meter it switch switches to the triple which is um mm-hmm. again not too jarring to scare the audience away, but interesting enough to keep them engaged in the performance. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about how he modulates back to G major. Definitely. And that whole run that happens. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, like, the run starts going, and then we get some trill action. Mm-hmm. And then we have that descending line where it switches back to eighth notes and that g sharp that's in there um definitely sticks out to me because we're not like fully back into g major like he wants to stay in d major a little bit longer by Mm -hmm. giving it a like an actual like five one feel like five of five to five feeling and then back to one yeah, it's super interesting how he does that. Yeah. And, also, and that's one of those things that he definitely was thinking of. What were you saying? Um, I was going to say, I like how the violas um, go. There's like some contrary motion between the the violins and the violas. Like the mm-hmm. when they're in the half notes, the two half notes there. I It's too small for me to tell what measure that is. But the two half notes, um, every, they're like ascending the scale and the violas go down. I'm not going to try to read what notes those are because I do not read alto clef and I don't want to spend two minutes of me one getting close enough so I can actually see the lines on my screen and then having to count what note is on which line. Just know that there's some contrary motion going on there. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So that would be an, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't read alto clef. I'm sorry, viola players sorry. and cello players. Big shout out to our violist and cellist audience. So true. Unlike other places, we care deeply about the viola. Yes, we are a viola stan podcast. This is a viola household. Even a though neither of us play the violas. viola. True. <laughs> That's okay. Alrighty. Ready to keep on going? Let's keep on going.
so I love and I've always thought this was a cool thing when I was making this uh, recording for us I love the way that he first uses those octaves right to supersede what we think is gonna come right because we have up until he gets to those octaves in measure 115 we've pretty much had just the exact same repetition of the music that we just heard but then all of a sudden he shoots at these octaves which are super jarring yes i was about to comment on like the range of this thing is crazy yeah he loves to shoot the violins up into the stratosphere um and good on you but, if you can play it oh all the way it's a great piece of music so he shoots the violins way up there um i like how he's using the violins in octave so he's actually really using a three octave range and then when you think that it couldn't get any more jarring then when he goes into the triplets for that motion you have just these constant like minor seconds happening yes very chromatic which very chromatic which is not something that i think of when i think of this classical period at all no we yeah i would associate chromaticism more with like beethoven yeah like this level of especially this level of chromaticism because that is i i had to double check this multiple times to make sure that these were the right notes because yeah. of just how jarring it sounds because he's he's jumping up major sevenths yeah like you know like a minor second here and there it's expected especially like mozart tr put a lot of trills in his music and they would be like super tight minor second trills they're normal mm -hmm. you usually don't jump up like almost an entire octave i mean yeah mozart's lacrimosa that's like the one thing that i can think of that kind of does that but mm -hmm. it that's a musical like that's text painting, not text. That's like a musical like motif within that because it's supposed to remember resemble crying. So, mm -hmm. yeah, and this is this is just weird the way that he's the way that he's using these um, these notes, and because of the fact that the uh, the first and second violins below the soloist are holding these out for. Um, eighth notes so you are going to have a little bit of bleed over from that note that they're holding out and the second note that the soloist plays so you are getting that minor second just right on top of each other mm -hmm. which is not something at all that you would think of with this sort of music no mm -mm. um but yeah, you've got the the beginning of this section that we played is just a repeat of the end of the last section we played. We just kind of split mm -hmm. in the middle. Um, yeah. And I like what the first violins do um, at the same half note sp spot that everyone else has, except the second the first violins have like eighth notes and then half note. Um, like mm -hmm. just to change it up a little bit. Um, that's pretty typical with. Um, writing in this period and but 
definitely the triplets are another cool factor and at this point they've established themselves as a motif going from eighth notes to triplets um, mm-hmm. yeah and he is going to he is going to develop that more And now we're going to the five of five. <laughs> Finally. Finally. Um, I love this little section right here. Yeah. I think it is so smart the way that he does some of this. Can we go to the triplet section where it's outlining like an A minor triad? Cause yeah. That is gorgeous. One, two, completely unexpected. Oh, 100% unexpected. I think what really is interesting to me about that is that the it's not even the soloist that has the money note in my world. It's the second violins lowering down from that E to that C sharp. Because they're essentially enough making almost, they're implying with the first violin and the rest of the orchestra almost like a c sharp diminished chord Ooh, yeah which gives it that really like that spicy feel to it i love it Uh uh-huh um and again the octave displacement of this thing is absolutely bonkers yeah he's all over the place um which I I don't play violin, but I know that that takes a lot of skill to mm-hmm. um, to do well and make, still make it sound like you're not scratching nails on a chalkboard. One other thing that I really that I love is how hard he drives home that A major feeling, because um, he uses for I think about seven measures that A pedal tone in the. Um, in the cellos and the basses. And I mean, he just sticks to that thing hard. Mm-hmm. Also feel the need to clarify what 505 is in case you're listening to this and you don't study music or you just don't know what it is. Um, so when a key is in a certain piece that the home key, like home base of that, um, of that piece is the tonic and the fifth 
of that tonic or the fifth note away from the tonic note is the five. And then the fifth note away from that note is the five of five. Mm -hmm. And the five of five, five relationship is probably one of the most fundamental relationships in all of music. Right, so wacky ride <laughs> we've been on mm-hmm. this yeah. session because we were briefly in the five of five, like n- not even there for that long until it mm-hmm. promptly uh, modulated to E minor. <laughs> yeah, so we have this really, really hard pedal all of a sudden to E minor. Um, and then we get some of these rip roaring. Um, minor scales that just kind of shoot out that he see that he loves to use he's a big fan also of jumping up by like by tenths um he really he really loves to use the tenth yeah and it's just another iteration of him just going buck wild with the with the octaves mm-hmm. with the two slash three octaves that are being played here Mm-hmm. And I also I also really like how he comes back to where we were at with these minor chords. Which does actually make sense because E minor is the relative minor of G major, our home key. Let's talk about the elephant in the room, which is the um the triplets. <laughs> I know, they come back in full force. Yeah. It's different because these, usually the triplets outline um, a scale, but these are straight up chromatic passages. Yeah. Yeah, they're, he's really just using them as like passing filler move, moments to get from, to move the melody forward. Yeah. Because it's just repeating like, if we're in E minor, like one five one five one five, um, But the... The accidentals keep the melody propelling forward, and he just changes it up with triplets instead of straight-up eighth notes. Yeah, which I think, it gives it that really tense feeling. Yes. You know, it may, it gives it that very, like, foreboding, 
bad feeling that I really love that he's using because it's such a jarring thing to all of a sudden have these chromatic rising triplets. Mm-hmm. For sure. I can already tell right off the bat that this next section that we're going to listen to is going to be interesting because the the beat starts with the violas and the violins come in on the offbeat. So yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's different. Yes. Alright, so we're back in G major, the tonic, and we're basically repeating the beginning. Yeah, so I think it's I think it's really interesting how he goes rather quickly from that E minor section um, to D major, actually, is where he goes to. And he goes um, 
It looks like he goes from E minor to C major almost. Kind of a weird C major feeling. Yeah. And then from there he goes to D major. Mm-hmm. But eventually he ends up back on the tonic. Yeah, but he eventually ends up back up on the tonic. I like how he kind of peppers in the opening part of it with these virtuosic violin moments. Kind of as like extra fills. Yeah, instead of it just being like a straight up repeat of the beginning, like he throws in some new things we haven't heard yet um, in between the the beginning of the piece and so that's not something that i see very often straight usually people just repeat the the first section and then add a big cadenza at the end and call it a day um i like the call and response motion of the solo with the rest of the orchestra Mm -hmm. um that happens a few times and i like you know how it just slows down at the end like it doesn't end with like a bum 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 like, a lot of concertos do, a lot of symphonies do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, well, this is only the first movement. That's true. But even, like, even, like, those those symphonies that, you know, you hear at a concert, people want to clap after the first movement, like... Uh-huh. Yeah. Usually it would end in something like that, but I like how this one just kind of, like, sets mm-hmm. the tone for the second movement, which I imagine is, like, an adagio or something. It is very much so a very pretty adagio for just the strings. Aw, nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. And then the last movement's a rondo. Ah, classic. Classic rondo. And yeah, I really I really like this piece. I think it's a good piece. I wish that it was performed more. Yeah, this is a solid piece. Like, if you want to describe the classical era to a T without doing Mozart or Haydn... This is a very great alternative. It's a good challenging piece for um, people learning or practicing the violin. Yes, I agree. I think I think there's a lot of interesting stuff. I think that also if you really want to dive into the theory of it, there's some really interesting stuff that he's doing here that I think would be really interesting to write a paper on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I wish I'd known about him in college because I definitely would have written a paper on this. Oh, 100% I would have written a paper on this guy. I mean, the paper pretty much writes itself, I feel like. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So that's been the life of Joseph Bologna Chevalier de Saint-Georges. Yeah, definitely an interesting guy. Had a wacky life story, did a lot. Um, and his music is beautiful. Like, his music is very interesting. There's lots of theory in it. Lots of interest, and it still stays true to the classical era. 100% I agree. And I would say if you are a person that is in the position to be incorporating music into a curriculum, right? Say you're a orchestra conductor, or maybe you direct your college's um, operas or something like that, I would say give him a solid consideration. Um... I think it's important to promote musicians who, whether they wanted to or not, were pushed out of the limelight. And this is a man that I definitely think was pushed out, not through any fault of his own. Yeah, for sure. Or you don't even have to be a director of an orchestra. If you're friends with one, um, you know, shoot them an email, shoot them a text, 
Give them a call. Send a carrier pigeon, you know, do your thing. Definitely. Edible arrangements make friendships. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? So if you want to um, keep up with us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at HiHo Podcast. That's H Y H O Podcast. If you want to shoot us an email um, with any observations, or if you have a composer that you want to suggest to us, our Gmail is the hi-ho podcast so t-h-e-h-y-h-o podcast at gmail.com and please leave us a review on whatever podcasting platform you listen to or shoot us a dm on instagram with any criticism praise constructive criticism we always appreciate it and yeah thanks again for listening and we hope to see you on the next one bye bye